Hello, this is your host, Eric Fleming. And before I get to the podcast, I want to make this special appeal. Jackson, Mississippi was my home for 34 years. My son was born there, and I have family and friends that live there. Now they, along with 150,000 other residents of the city with Seoul, are in a crisis that was years in the making. On August 29th, the citizens of the largest city in Mississippi lost their access to the municipal water system. A city that is 83% black has lost access to safe drinking water. A city in which one out of four citizens live below poverty has lost access to safe drinking water. They need our help. The Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition is asking you, your friends and neighbors, to give to help them reach their goal of $2 million. Funds raised will be used to purchase water, transport water to households, purchase reusable water containers, storage space for water filters, essentials, and other items needed during what is expected to be at least a year without safe water. Go to peoplesadvocacyinstitute.com to find out more how you can help. That's peoplesadvocacyinstitute.com. Thank you. Hello. Welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today I have uh, two guests that'll come on um, the podcast to discuss some current issues that are taking place, uh, more or less kind of the aftermath of these particular uh, issues. And when I say issues, in one case, I'm talking about legislation. Other piece, I'm talking about a Supreme Court decision. So my first guest is going to talk about some legislation. But before I get to my first guest, I have some housekeeping to take care of. One, um, I made a mistake on my previous guest, Representative Chris Bell. Um, I stated that he was born in 1970 and, uh, that would make him a lot older than what he is. Uh, so I apologize for that. I'm glad some people caught that. Uh, one of the things that I do try to do, uh, even if it's something small as that is to make sure I got the facts right, because what I try to do compared to other folks that are out there talking about politics as I try to stay with the facts. So uh, Representative Bell, I apologize for making you older than what you were. Uh, appreciated you being on the show and, and giving us an update of what's going on in Jackson, Mississippi. So now I'm gonna go see if I can get this introduction right for my first guest. Uh, her name is Nadra Niddle. Uh, Nadra Niddle is a veteran journalist with a background 
reporting on a wide range of topics, including food, health, education, religion, public policy, and the arts. She is currently the education reporter for the 19th, which is an independent uh, newsroom, uh, online news magazine, however you want to look at it. But it's an independent news organization uh, that deals with uh, politics, uh, gender equality, uh, and a whole bunch of other issues, right? She has been a senior reporter at Civil Eats and a regular contributor to NBC News Think, KCET, History Channel, and Outreach Magazine. She is a former staff writer for Vox.com, the Los Angeles News Group, and the USA Today Network. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, BBC News, Business Insider, The Huffington Post, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. She has edited multiple book series for Enslow Publishing and written a book, Recognizing Microaggressions for that publisher. Nadra has discussed her work on a number of media outlets, including Good Morning America, WYNC's The Takeaway, The Columbia Journalism Review, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Vox Today Explained Podcast, and Southern California Public Radio. Additionally, she has been a featured panelist and moderator at events organized by the James Beard Foundation, the LA Times Festival of Books, Cal State LA, and Occidental College, her alma mater. Nadra is the author of Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, Folk Tales, and Feminism in Her Life and Literature. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to present to you Nadra Niddle. All right, Ms. Niddle, how are you doing today? I am fine. How are you? I'm doing good. It is an honor to have you on. Uh, I have watched you on MSNBC and uh, I think PBS, and I've read some of your articles. So I wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about a couple of things. Um, First, let's talk about, explain to the listeners what the Stop Woke Act and the Don't Say Gay Act in Florida are. Yeah, so Stop Woke was basically legislation that really sought to limit what schools, so that's K through 12 schools and college and universities, and even workplaces, how they could discuss racial issues, how they could discuss diversity and inclusion. However, it was considered unconstitutional. And so a judge blocked um, the Stop Woke Act uh, because a university professor and some students brought a lawsuit against that. So that is essentially what the Stop Woke Act um, plan to do. And then don't say gay, it's actually not called don't say gay, it doesn't actually say that in the legislation. But a lot of people have interpreted the bill um, as one that would limit what, again, what schools can say about gender and sexuality 
Um, and so that is why it's called don't say gay, even though the legislation doesn't specifically have that phrase in it. Yeah. So on the Stop Woke Act, even though it's this is not something neither one of these bills are uh, originated in Florida. These were ideas that have been used in other parts of the country, um, especially well with the Stop Woke Act. Talk about there was there was like in Alabama and in some other states that they 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 pushed this uh, and and some teachers were concerned about. You were telling a story about Wilma Rudolph, that, and that's why I was trying to get to. There was a state where a teacher felt that he couldn't talk about Wilma Rudolph. Uh, okay, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're seeing states. I it may have been Texas, but we're seeing a lot of states that have anti-critical race theory laws, essentially, and the way that that's being interpreted is telling teachers that they can't say anything about race, whether that's bringing up history or historical figures like Wilma Rudolph, like Ruby Bridges. When I was on PBS, that's someone else I um, brought up. Even Martin Luther King. Um, there are parent groups like Moms for Liberty that have complained that teaching about Black historical figures, you know, sins a negative message to white children that it could make them feel guilty or other uncomfortable emotions. And so they don't want these books to be taught in schools. So, and so this is, this is nationwide, but Florida is the only state that had legislation called, you know, the Stop Woke Act. Gotcha. And, and yeah, yeah. So those are specifics of Florida, but there's a national trend of these kinds of limits on education. So go into a little detail. Who are these moms of liberty? Where do they come from? And, and what well, is their agenda? They do come from Florida. Yeah, Moms for Liberty. Um, they're two um, former school board members in Florida. And they started this group, but it's also spread. So we have chapters of Moms for Liberty I don't know if it's in every state, but it's in it's in many states, and I would probably say most states at this point. There are um, different chapters of this, but Florida was the, you know, kind of the the origin of that group. And they're supposed to they're they're kind of like the Karens of of public education. Uh, they're they're trying <laughs> to they're trying to catch everything that's dealing with with racism or whatever, and trying to keep it because I understand they. They literally like call schools and call principals and, you know, and complain about something being taught uh, at, at a school. Well, yeah, and I've interviewed um, one of the co-founders before. And so my understanding is that even though they have complained about race and, and racial issues, their focus seems to be more on LGBTQ plus issues. That's what they told me um, when I spoke to them, but they have made complaints related to both. Um, but when I spoke to them, they said they're more concerned about, um, you know, students learning about trans people and things like that in schools. They're more concerned about gender and sexuality, um, but they may have just been telling me that at the time because I'm black. 
So they may have been, you know, trying to make me feel that um, they're not concerned about Black people, they're concerned about LGBTQ plus people. But from what I know, they seem to have a problem with all of it. And so that's a good tie into the next question, because in the article that you wrote on the 19th, you were talking about the teacher shortage. And, yes. and you were highlighting an LGBTQ uh, plus teacher who basically has quit and become an activist because she was concerned at how uh, the uh, legislation that was passed uh, that limited discussing anything LGBTQ uh, would impact her teaching. Because she, she talked about and I'll let you get into it in detail, but I know she was talking about just an incident where kids would just ask her personal questions and she felt like she would get in trouble if she answered those truthfully. Yeah, she, and she really was speaking on behalf of other LGBTQ plus um, teachers because even though she identifies as bisexual, her current partner is a man. So she felt like she, she at the time, can say, yes, I, you know, my partner is a man, but for other people um, who aren't able to say that, they would especially feel uncomfortable saying that they were in a same sex marriage or something like that, um, that they would be afraid of revealing too much, even though students notoriously <laughs> ask a lot of personal questions about teachers' lives. And some teachers, they may have, they may put up family photos or at least have them on their desk um, and students might ask questions. But if, if you're um, in a, a same sex partnership, then you wouldn't feel comfortable doing that because that could possibly, you know, lead to some sort of disciplinary action. At least that's the fear that people have. So I'm kind of curious if 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 they found that the Stop Woke Act was unconstitutional, why hasn't anything uh, pertaining to this anti-LGBTQ LGBTQ legislation gone yeah, down the I'm same not, legal path? I'm not sure, and I, I would, right now what I have heard. It, that that bill is written in a very vague manner and there's a lot of room for interpretation it's house bill 1557 um and i don't know if different groups it it, it might just depend on different groups and and what lawsuits are brought forth and then what a judge decides so with stop woke um, that's when it ended up happening. We had some civil rights groups, we had university professors and students all bring forth a lawsuit against and the judge um, decided that it, it was not constitutional. But even then, I don't think it's the last stop for <laughs> Stop Woke Act. I think right now it's, it's essentially suspended, but it doesn't mean it's totally gone away yet. Gotcha. So you were tying this, these pieces of legislation to uh, teacher shortages. We understand Florida, I think they have, is it like a 9,000 teachers that they're short? And, that, and yeah. we're seeing that trend nationally. And so basically you were, you were talking about how this legislation is, 
is impacting the teacher shortage. It's just kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Yes. So the the teacher union does say that they they think there are about a nine thousand teachers, and and that's other educators too. So it could include things like paraprofessionals and um, you know uh, other people who work in education but are not necessarily classroom teachers. So that nine thousand figure refers to all of them. Now I did reach out to the Florida Department of Education and. Um, they would not, you know, confirm that figure, but they also would not supply a figure of their own um, as to how bad the teacher shortage is there. Um, but yeah, from the teacher I profiled in this article, I also interviewed an administrator and I interviewed, um, yeah, the president of the teachers of the Florida Teachers Union and some other groups. And they do feel that these restrictions on curriculum are discouraging people from either entering teaching or remaining in teaching because no one, whether or not you, you know they belong to an LGBTQ plus group or they're a member of a racial minority, I think there's a lot of fear that if they say the wrong quote unquote the wrong thing and um, that might be just discussing some sort of current event that's in the news that a student might bring up that if they say the wrong thing that they might get reported and disciplined and so i think teachers already during the pandemic have been very stressed out and have to put up with a lot and these curriculum restrictions are just another hurdle um, that they have to jump over. That that's how it's explained to me. So, what is the impact? What what is the impact of these teachers' shortages, uh, especially on African American students? Because the majority of I I would say the majority of the public school students, especially in the inner cities and in the South, are African American. So, anytime there's a teacher shortage, what does that mean to students that attend these schools yeah so i mean if we look at it at that the most affluent the most privileged the you know the whitest schools that you know they're likely not dealing with shortages to the same degree um that some of these schools that serve more vulnerable populations are so if there's a teacher shortage and people prefer to work at the so-called best schools then you know, the schools that will be heavily impacted by the teacher shortage are the ones that are serving low-income students, that are serving Black and Brown students. So anytime, you know, there's a teacher shortage or any other kind of, adver of adversity in education, it's going to go double for the schools that are already in vulnerable communities. Yeah, because, I, I, you know, from my brief time teaching, it was like, they said the ideal classroom would be like 15, no more than 20 students. So if you have teacher shortages, that means those classrooms are probably going to be double that size, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think even, you know, before, I mean, the teacher shortage too, I should say, it's not something that just happened during the pandemic. We already were experiencing a teacher shortage. It was kind of slowly brewing. And then the pandemic worsened it because 
some people trace the teacher shortage as far back as the you know 2008 recession um, in Florida in particular there were changes made to how teachers got paid or received tenure and and so my sources for that article say that contributed as well so this is something that's been years in the making um, it, it's not new yeah but these these restrictions are not helping either they're not they're not allowing people to feel comfortable and, and i wouldn't want to work in a situation where i didn't feel comfortable in doing my job and uh, i'm sure you wouldn't either um no <laughs> and i briefly taught as well you said you briefly taught. i i also have taught um briefly yeah. like a for a couple of years before i became a full-time journalist yeah yeah so um i wanted to touch on something else that you wrote too while i had you and uh, it was dealing with uh the student loans uh yeah you you wrote that um well you broke down that it would benefit who would benefit the most from the student uh debt forgiveness plan uh so kind of talk about who who in the article you thought were going to benefit the most from uh, having their student loan debts uh, forgiven? Yeah, and in the, the headline said benefit the most. I don't know if it <laughs> if it's going to exactly break down like this, but we know that women of color have a higher student debt burden than other groups do. So because they have so much debt, you know, on average, everyone has about 30,000 people who have student loans on average have about 30,000 loans or so. And then for women of color, um, not all, but for black women, indigenous women, Pacific Islander women, um, it, it's several thousand dollars more than that. And then if they pursue a master's degree or some other, you know, um, postgraduate training, their loans go up to for Black women um, over seventy thousand. I think for all women, um, including white women, it's at least fifty-five thousand dollars. So my article was saying that women really could benefit, um, and women of color in particular could benefit a lot from Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Um, and also the other thing is that Pell Grant. Um, recipients are going to receive 20,000 in student debt relief compared to other um, students who borrowed who will get 10,000 in debt relief. And the reason the Pell Grant is so significant is because Black students are twice as likely to be Pell Grant recipients. So that means that they, you know, will have double the amount of, of student loans forgiven. So that's how. <laughs> you know, these groups will benefit. And I'm sorry if I was long-winded. No, no, that. that's, that's perfect. Cause, um, you know, I think it was like black women, <coughs> excuse me, overall, I think they had the highest, you had mentioned in the grad, like 70,000, I think overall it was like 41,000, something like that. And, um, the only group that kind of, the only two groups that kind of did okay was, uh, well, I say that okay their, their debt is not as high as like asian women and latina women but as far yeah, as that's at the bachelor's degree level yeah yeah 
but for graduate level, then then they all go up as well. Yeah. So when you when you were doing the research for that particular story, what kind of what kind of negative feedback were you getting? What what were people saying that are not in favor of the debt forgiveness? What was their biggest complaint? Well, I mean, I wasn't personally approached by anyone who felt negatively about it, if you can believe it. Not even on social media. I just didn't hear from people um, who felt negatively. And that could just be because while there are people who oppose student loans, most Americans do support student loan forgiveness, even those um, who may not have had a lot of student loan debt or any themselves, um, findings show that more, more than half of Americans support student loan forgiveness. So I think the number one complaint I've heard is just some people felt like it didn't go far enough. You know, there were a lot of groups who wanted there to be $50,000 of loan forgiveness across the board and they didn't want those income restraints because one thing i didn't mention is that as a single person if you're making over $125,000 a year or if you're married and making as a couple $250,000 a year then you would not qualify for loan forgiveness and i have heard from people who object to that because they say that a, depending on where you live, you could make over $125,000 and still not be considered very affluent, but also that students of color um, and even you know graduates of color, that their wealth um, is not the same in the sense that if you are helping support other family members, like your parents or grandparents or cousins, whoever it may be, or even if you're sending, you know, if your family was an immigrant family and you're sending money, you know, back home to relatives in that country, that you do not have the same, your household income does not really look the same as someone, as a white student who may not be having to support family members um, in the same way or may be getting help from their parents to put a down payment on a home and things like that, that for students of color, um, they often don't have those same sorts of resources. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I've, I've been hearing a lot of the, the negative on both sides. As a matter of fact, one of my friends did a meme and he had a, he was showing like a fire in like this little park or parking or whatever it was, it was like some trees and was on fire. And then he shows this woman on a balcony with a bucket of water trying to put the fire out. Uh, <laughs> so that kind of fell in that category, what you talked about, but there were other people that were just against the loan forgiveness altogether because they want to say, you know, they want to say that they didn't want to pay for somebody else's financial mistakes or financial burden. Most of the people that you you've talked to about it, most of these people have jobs, right? Most of these people are are working that are that are paying these student loans back. So just kind of talk about that real brief. Oh, yes. And I've done multiple articles on student loans. And I have one that's even coming out actually about the Pell Grant and the origins of the Pell Grant. But every time I talk to anyone with student loan debt, 
they always have jobs. Some of them might have multiple jobs, actually. Um, but they're all working. They're all working people, um, and many of them are trying to, um, you know, support children if they have them, or they're putting off having children because they can't afford them. They're putting off things like getting a new car, or buying a, a, a home, and not all the people I talked to were young either. I mean, I've talked to, I think the oldest person I've spoken to who still has um, significant student loan debt was around 60 years old. So these aren't, you know, all 25 year olds or anything like that. There are a wide range of people and, and many of them are definitely over 40. Okay. So you said you're getting ready to, to put together some more articles about this where can people uh you know look at your work um and uh and reach out to you if if they if they have questions or they want to talk to you further about education issues yeah so they can read my work at 19th so 19th news n-e-w-s dot o-r-g so 19thnews.org they can see my writing there um they can also follow me on twitter it's twitter.com backslash nadra n-a-d-r-a k-a-r-e as in edward e as in edward m as in mary so twitter.com backslash nadra kareem okay well, Ms. Niddle, I, I thank you for taking the time. I appreciate you coming on to uh, talk about these issues and, and help educate our listeners and um, look forward to continuing to, to read uh, a lot of your, your, your good journalism and, and keep that up. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. All right, guys, we're going to catch y'all on the other side. And so we're back and I want to thank Ms. Niddle for coming on and educating us about what's going on in education, right? Uh, especially when it comes to this kind of legislation that's out here that people like Governor DeSantis and others of his ilk are trying to push nationwide and what kind of impact that's having. Uh, also hipping us up to this group, Moms of Liberty. <sighs> Lord have mercy. Anyway, um, yeah, so it's just amazing how they can come up with all these different types of names and stuff. It makes it sound so positive and refreshing. And it's just amazing how they could take good words like liberty and twist them. But anyway. We'll deal with that another day. Um, now it's time to get to my second guest. Who? So when the Dobbs decision finally came out, um, it wasn't a surprise to us, right? Uh, if y'all remember, I interviewed this woman named Kelsey Walker, 
And the day that I interviewed her was the day that the leak, the leaked legal memo came out that they were going to overturn Roe v. Wade. So it wasn't official yet, but we knew it was coming. So now the guest that I have on today has been dealing with the aftermath of the Dobbs decision. She's been on the front lines uh, mobilizing and strategizing to deal with the results uh, of that decision. So I want to bring on a lady named Jamisa Bailey. Jamisa Bailey is the director of Black Campaigns at Planned Parenthood Action Fund, where she directs the overall political and organizing strategy for Black engagement and mobilization at both the national and affiliate level. She also works to provide valuable insights, research, and information on the values, concerns, and challenges of Black people that will be used to create culturally sensitive and smart engagement strategies. Pivotal moment of success for her has been creating Planned Parenthood's Black Organizing Program in 2018 and growing the program in 14 states within the first 10 months of its launch. In December of 2020, Jamisa was inducted to the Forbes 30 Under 30 class of 2021. Her experience is enhanced by her bachelor's degree in political science from Delaware State University and her master's of public administration with a concentration on nonprofit management from the University of Baltimore. Jamisa and her husband, Justin, are proud first-time parents to baby Camden. She is a proud resident of Maryland who resides in Temple Hills. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Jamisa Bailey. All right, Miss Bailey, how are you doing? I am doing well. We are uh, wrapping up summer and coming into my favorite season, fall. So I am feeling really good. Wouldn't be fall because it's election season, would it? <laughs> aside from that, aside from that. Hey, <laughs> it was good to have you on. Um, Thank as, you so as much I for having me. Yeah, so as I explained in the in the intro, the last time this podcast talked about what was happening with reproductive rights, it was literally the day that the Dobb memo came out, right? Mm-hmm. And I was speaking to a young lady who was an activist uh, at the time, so it, we it just was lucked up that the day we scheduled that memo got leaked. But as I also said in the intro, you've been on the front line since then, right? Yeah. But before we get into all that that you've been doing, I wanna wanna ask you a question about something that just came up and and how y'all been responding to that. So Lindsey Graham, you and I's favorite senator from South Carolina, said that, uh, (laughs) said that if, if the Republicans get the majority of the Senate and the majority in the House, I, I assume as well, that he's going to introduce a ban 
a federal ban on abortion. What has been the immediate response to that? Because I think he said that like about a week ago or something like that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, um, it's no surprise, right? Uh, we know that this has been the end game um, for um, folks who do not believe that abortion should be um, a right for folks to um, seek. So um, it's not a surprise to us. Um, it just honestly, um, uh, gives us even more um, to go after folks and, and to really, really spread the message that this is what their goal is and has always been, right? Um, we know that uh, when the decision was leaked, uh, we were not surprised at what we saw. Um, we have been planning for a long time um, and um, that still didn't um, negate the hurt um, and the fear that some folks felt. Um, but we knew that this was going to be the long game for them, um, and this is what they wanted. Um, so nothing that is coming out of uh, Senator Graham or anyone else's uh, mouth um, is a surprise to us um, as it relates to abortion access. All right, so let's get into what's been what's been going on. First of all, what's been the impact to African American women since the Dobbs decision has been handed down? Yeah, I mean, honestly, before I even get into the impact um, of Dobbs, um, I just want to say that Roe was never enough, right? Roe was never enough for Black women, for trans and non-binary people who have always faced um, extreme barriers to accessing abortion care, um, especially those who are in rural areas, who are living paycheck to paycheck, who already face racist criminalization and mass incarceration. This is a direct result of ongoing racism, ongoing white supremacy, and coercive reproductive policies that have always existed in our country. And so I think that it's really important for us to start with that framing that because of the decision from the Supreme Court, folks' lives are not automatically uh, now being impacted. We have been impacting and facing um, barriers to, uh, to assessing abortion care or abortion access before Dobbs. Um, since then, um, nearly a third of the U.S. states have abortion bans, in fact, uh, meaning that one in three American women have already lost um, access to the right to control their bodies, and it's actually in jeopardy for 10 million Black women um, who can become pregnant. Um, many of those Black women live in the South, um, where they have already enacted near or total abortion bans, and where Black women are already experiencing higher rates of poverty, less health care coverage, and more pregnancy-related deaths and complications than their white counterparts. Yeah, so just a full disclosure for you, I, I was a state legislator for nine years, and mm -hmm. so in, in Mississippi. So that one clinic that was on State Street, the Jackson Women's Health Center, that was always a struggle dealing with keeping them open. Yeah. Uh, and when we did have a bill back in the day when I was serving, uh, I was the one that got the amendment in to put exceptions in. And I think it, it passed and then the courts threw it out then. Uh, but now it's a it's a whole totally different vibe as far as even considering the exceptions. Um, so so based on that, right, based on how extreme uh, the right wants to go with this, how has the mobilization effort been? How has 
Has it been challenging? Has it been easy? Has it been a little bit of both? Yeah, um, we've been out here in these streets, Eric. <laughs> we have been out here in these streets. Um, so uh, the program that I oversee, our Black organizing program, I'm always going to talk about what we have been doing. Um, we believe that the recipe for total reproductive um, freedom, reproductive uh, access to care for Black folks is uh, doing three things. So first, we want to make sure that we are always um, having an organizing and advocacy component to everything we do. We also are making sure that we have an educational component, right? Because we know that there are a lot of myths out there. There are a lot of things that are just straight, you know, out not true. And so we always have an educational component. And we also have resource distribution, right? We recognize the fact that we are a well-known brand with a lot of reach and a lot of supporters. And we make sure that there is a resource, distri uh, resource distribution um, component to everything that we do. Um, the week after the decision came out, we were actually on the ground in New Orleans at Essence Fest. Um, and it really was a remarkable time to come together um, we actually uh, hosted a Stand With Black Women house um, not far from the convention center. Um, we had panels with patients, with celebrities, with um, other folks in the movement like Reverend Al Sharpton, like Derek Johnson from the NAACP, like our CEO and president, Alexis McGill Johnson. And we specifically talked about abortion access. Uh, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that we had a, a panel with young people. Um, the youngest person had just graduated from high school. Um, and we were talking about how important the midterm elections were and what issues were top of mind for them. Um, and actually, uh, Reverend um, Al Sharpton's daughter, Ashley Sharpton, was actually one of our panelists, as well as um, actress and influencer, um, Alexandra Shipp. Um, but over the two or three days that we were in New Orleans, it was really just us coming together and building community, right? Because we know that there's gonna be an opportunity for us to fight, but it was really important for us to care for one another at that moment. Um, other things that we're doing, we had an HBCU summit last month. Um, we are active in a number of HBCU chapters, um, campuses across the, the nation with our Planned Parenthood Generation Action um, chapters. Um, and we came together for a summit and we specifically talked about how we're showing up on HBCU campuses this school year as it relates to the Dobbs decision. Um, another thing that we're doing, we're in the streets. So in Illinois, um, our affiliate in Illinois actually just uh, tabled at the Silver Room Block Party. It's a block party um, that they host annually in Hyde Park. And it's an opportunity for local businesses, Black-owned businesses, to engage with Black communities in Chicago. Um, another thing that we're doing, I can go on and on, but I'm really proud of our shop chats. Um, we had a shop chats weekend of action this summer. Um, our shop chats are Planned Parenthood partnerships with Black-owned businesses, where we host community conversations about topics in sexual and reproductive health care. And this particular shop chats weekend of action that we held in July, we specifically talked about the impact that the Dobbs decision has had on Black communities. Um, and so we have really been out here um, and we are not stopping. We're going to be at several HBCU um, campuses this fall for homecoming, um, letting folks know that we are not, you know, going down without a fight, um, educating folks again on what the decision means for them, 
debunking myths and just really, really making sure that folks know the full picture of what's at stake as we head into um, this midterm season. Well, October 23rd is Jackson, Jackson State's homecoming. So, oh, so yeah, <laughs> we yeah. have a chapter at Jackson State. Yeah, yeah. So that's good. D.I. Love <laughs> had to put that plug in. And you also mentioned Chicago. So uh, I appreciate that. Um, now, let me ask you, uh, I, I don't know if it's a tough question or not, but it's something that's been coming up in the political uh, discussion, especially in the diaspora over the last couple of weeks. Uh, what strategies are in place for reaching and mobilizing African-American men? Yeah, um, you know, so when it comes to Black men, um, unfortunately, they don't always see themselves as a part of or represented in mainstream abortion access with, 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 as it relates to mainstream abortion access, right? Um, and so that's why it's really, really important to us as an organization to partner with organizations who do really, really great targeting, messaging, and outreach to Black men. Uh, we're really proud of our partnerships with folks like Men for Choice, um, folks at the NAACP, folks that amplify actions. And again, we're going to be on the ground at homecomings this summer, um, this fall, making sure that Black men um, not only see themselves as a part of this uh, issue, but also are motivated enough to take action, right? And this is cisgendered men as well as trans men, right? There is room in the abortion access movement for everyone. And this is not just a quote unquote women's issue, right? There is room for all of us and it's gonna take all of us um, coming together in order to really, really uh, make some changes. Um, another thing that I'm super excited about that we're doing in Georgia in the fall is we're actually doing a Divine Nine um, weekend of action where we're going to be doing some canvassing. We're coming together with Black sororities and Black fraternities um, because we know that our Black sororities and fraternities are such pillars in uh, Black communities, and we're super, super excited to be able to be on the ground with them um, in, in getting more uh, Black men um, into our movement, educated on what's going on, and hopefully getting them activated as well. Yeah, that's that's encouraging. But like I said, it's been a real emphasis lately, just overall politically talking about Black men, which is which yeah. is encouraging, but it's interesting that now all of a sudden you know, it's, it's, it's important to discuss that, but I, I want to get back to something you said earlier. You, you mentioned that your part of your job is trying to dispel myths. Give me an example yeah. of one myth and how you dispel that. Um, I, the, the, I guess I can just go on the example that I just, you, you uh, the black men, right. So, okay. and that, uh, this myth that the abortion access movement is just for women, right? Um, that's a myth. It's not just a quote unquote women's issue. We need everyone regardless of sexual identity, religion. Um, it, we need everybody um, standing with us. Um, and I think that has been the biggest myth of folks saying, oh, I don't want to um, speak out. You know, I'm going to let the women handle it or I don't feel like it's my place. It's everybody's fight. It's everybody's fight. And I think that um, us having conversations on the ground, us having that educational component, us partnering with specific organizations who do have a very, very strong uh, male following is really the key to us helping to dispel that myth and hopefully also, again, activating folks to, to join us. 
All right. So question that's a little broader than African-American. Mm-hmm. What did the vote in Kansas mean for the reproductive rights movement? Um, I am actually not sure. And I don't like to speak on things that are not okay. my ministry. And so I will definitely defer to Kathy to get that information to you. Okay. Um, because I, I, the reason why I asked that is because I think that a lot of the interest has peaked and a lot of folks feel optimistic about the way the elections are going to go based on Kansas. Yeah. And so that's why I was trying to get a feel since you're kind of dealing with that, even if you're just dealing with a, a targeted area, uh, just overall a sense of uh, how people are, are feeling about uh, how this issue is going to be addressed. And then the other other piece on that is that prior to Dobbs, the biggest issue that almost everybody's minds is inflation. And now we're seeing that uh, the the number one or number two issue in most polls has become reproductive rights. Yeah. Uh, are, are you really just from a political standpoint, you know, being a poli-sci major from Delaware State and all, um, <laughs> are, you, are you surprised that the issue has taken this kind of interest or because prior to that, it didn't seem like it was, it was just kind of a matter of fact deal? Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that over 80% of Americans actually believe that Roe should be the law of the land and they support access to safe and legal abortion. And so when we see, um, you know, what happened in Kansas, um, I had a brain fart for a second. I was like, hey, I'm in Maryland, so all of the things. Um, <laughs> but when we see what happens in, when we see what happened in Kansas, uh, Kansas it really just affirms that, right? Uh, Kansas has historically been um, a Republican-run and led state, and then folks came out and supported abortion access, right, um, or access to safe and legal abortion. Um, and that is not surprising for us because, again, we know that as a whole, over 80% of folks do agree um, that Roe should be the law of the land and that folks deserve rights to safe and legal abortion. And so it's not surprising to us what is surprising is that folks know this information and are still looking to do the exact opposite, right? These are politicians who we elected and keep in office, um, and they are not representing what we want and need. Um, and I think Kansas is a really, really great example of folks who are just completely out of touch um, with what their constituents actually want and need. And it looks like Kansas wants and needs access to safe and legal abortion. Yeah, and it, they're out of touch with history, too, because Kansas, and I was explaining it to another guest when we were talking about it, that, you know, Kansas was one of those states that was pushing for suffrage uh, mm. for women. And and they were like, you know, that was kind of how they made a name for themselves nationally, how they did that. And, and so for uh, people to think that, you know, two or three generations of, of women voting, now all of a sudden you think that you can overstep your bounds and take away a right. Uh, yeah, that was a total miscalculation on their part. And I'm glad to see that 
you and and others you know when i say you your organization and others are uh fighting the fight we had a similar situation in mississippi uh where they over calculated on per- personhood they thought that personhood was going to pass in mississippi and and it got shut down with like 60 percent of the vote so mm. um i think you're right on that on that point that uh people the most conservative thing a person can do politically is protect their constitutional rights. Hmm. And I think when you look at this quote unquote conservative movement now, they've forgotten that. And they're, they're trying to push a radical agenda of their own. Um, So, and so that's just, that's just my assessment of it. Um, What advice Oh, can I just say one thing? Yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. I mean, the, bo- the bottom line is this is about control, right? This is about control. Politicians who are hostile to reproductive rights want to control, uh, want to control what we can or cannot do with our bodies as a means to hold on to their own power, right? Because uh, we know that a lot of these states, particularly in the South, where they are uh, passing near or total abortion bans, also have some of the worst. Uh, maternal mortality rates for Black women, right? And so we know that it is not about quote-unquote life. It is absolutely about control. Um, and they won't stop until abortion is completely banned in every state in the country. Right. In Mississippi, I mean, my friends had to literally go through two weeks without water. And mm, It's and, horrible and, what's happening in Mississippi. And, and we have a governor that's more concerned about other things than taking care of his own people. But Absolutely. That's a that's a whole nother show. You don't need to be involved. Yes. In that. Uh, <laughs> but um, what I was going to ask you is, is there any anything that you would advise young women, especially young African-American women to do at this particular point to protect their rights? Yeah, I mean, the, the number one thing that I always say, um, there is power in storytelling, right? And so... Um, we are uh, on social media, having conversations with our families, sharing our abortion stories, um, something that, you know, uh, hostile politicians don't want us to do right. They want us to feel shame and trauma and stigma. And there's power in sharing our, our stories with folks. So if you have an abortion story, share it. Um, talk about it with your family. Um, you can also join the Black Organizing Program. We are always, always looking for folks um, to join our movement at Planned Parenthood. Um, you can actually text the word MAGIC, like Black Girl MAGIC, um, to the number 22422 to get on our list and be activated wherever you are in the country. Uh, we're active in 15 states across the nation. Um, and so we will get you activated with your nearest affiliate. Um, you can also donate to Planned Parenthood Action Fund. You can donate to local um, uh, abortion um, funds. Um, these are folks who are actually collecting funding for people who may have to travel um, either a long distance or out of state to receive access to care. Um, you can also uh, RSVP to the Women's Convention. Um, they are training and organizing to ensure that people who get pregnant are represented on the ballot box in November. Um, there are so, so many things that folks can be doing um, to make sure um, that they are educating themselves and also activating um, because, you know, this this was not something that happened overnight um, for uh, politicians who do not want 
um, access to legal, uh, safe and legal abortion. This was definitely a long game for them. And so we've got to do our part and, and really meet the moment and really get activated and, and educated um, and really fired up um, because uh, we have a, a serious fight ahead of us. And um, Planned Parenthood, uh, my program, Black Women, um, we are not going to stop. Um, we're not going to stop. All right. So repeat that text code again, and then also yeah. give the information of how people can reach Planned Parenthood online, social media, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So again, you can text the word MAGIC, M-A-G-I-C, to the number 22422. It's going to ask you for your zip code so we can make sure that we are pairing you with the closest um, affiliate partner. Um, and then after you enter your zip code, it's going to um, send you a prompt to uh, fill out some information. You can also go to PlannedParenthoodAction.org, one word. And you can also go to BansOff.org. Um, and Bans is B-A-N-S, um, off.org. Well, Ms. Bailey, thank you so much for taking time out of this fight to to, to talk to me and, and my guests, I mean, my listeners, I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> on um, on this issue. Uh, wish you much success and, and continued thank prosperity you so in your role, all right? Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for allowing me the platform to be able to, 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 to let folks know what's going on, how they can get involved. Yes, ma'am. All right, guys, we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right, and so we're back, and I want to close out, um, first of all, by thanking um, uh, Jamisa Bailey for uh, taking the time out to uh, talk about where the movement is going and how you can get involved. And when I say you, I'm, I'm not just talking about women talking about men too. Um, this is an issue that impacts all of us. Uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And anytime you're talking about taking somebody's constitutional rights away, that's an injustice, right? Okay. So, uh, again, I want to thank her and, uh, uh, Catherine and the staff over at, at Planned Parenthood for uh, making uh, Ms. Bailey available. Uh, and just like any other guest, uh, more than welcome to come back on uh, and probably want to come back on, I'm sure, after the election to kind of see how everything shook out, right? Anyway, um, I wanted to close with this. And it's based off something that is that just happened within the last week. So I'm going to read this, this statute. It's 18 U.S. Code 1201. And I'm just going to read Section A of it. Um, and you'll probably get the idea where I'm going with that. Section A says, whoever unlawfully seizes, confines, inveigles, decoys, kidnaps, abducts, or carries away 
and holds for ransom or reward or otherwise any person except in the case of a minor by the parent thereof when the person is willfully transported in interstate or foreign commerce regardless of whether the person was alive when transported across the state boundary or the offender travels in interstate or foreign commerce or uses the mail or any means, facility, or instrumentality of interstate or foreign commerce in committing or in furtherance of the commission of the offense. Any such act against a person is done within the special maritime and territorial jurisdiction of the United States. Any such act against a person is done within the special aircraft jurisdiction of the United States as defined in section 46501 of Title 49. The person is a foreign official, an internationally protected person, or an official guest, as those terms are defined in Section 1116B of this title, or the person is among those officers and employees described in Section 1114 of this title, and any such act against the person is done while the person is engaged in or on account of the performance of official duties shall be punished by imprisonment for any term of years or for a life. And if the death of any person results, shall be punished by death or life imprisonment. What Ron DeSantis did as the governor of Florida falls under that code section, especially that fancy word I threw in there, inveigle, because inveigle means deception. They told people, 50 people from Venezuela that were looking for asylum, they told them to get on two planes. And they told them that on those planes, They were going to have food. They were going to provide them clothing. Once they got to this magic destination, they were going to automatically have shelter. They even said it was some kind of special prize. Don't know what that was. But they told these people all of that. They enticed them to, they they asked those people to entrust them to get on the plane. And they took them and then they dropped them off in Martha's Vineyard. Now, the reason why Martha's Vineyard of all the places they could have done was straight up pettiness. It was because Barack Obama, if you remember when he was president, that was kind of one of his vacation homes outside of he had one in Martha's Vineyard and one in Hawaii. Whenever he wanted to get away from the White House and get away from Camp David, he would go to one of those two locations. So the pettiness was, we're going to drop them off. And even somebody was snarky enough to post, I don't, it was, it was on a news network's social media that Obama had this multi-bedroom house. It was worth $12 million, plenty of space, right? But your pettiness, Governor DeSantis, may cost you your freedom. And here's the funny thing. Even if you think that you're so smart that you can avoid going to jail, what you have done 
if the Department of Justice, who, by the way, is investigating, if the Department of Justice can get a grand jury of your peers to indict you, then guess what you did for those 50 Venezuelans that you wanted to treat as a political pawn? You basically secured their rights to be here. Now, you painted them as aliens and your partner in Texas, Governor Abbott, and the illegals and all that. People that seek asylum go through the process. These people voluntarily turn themselves in once they cross the border because they're seeking asylum. So the first authority they saw was a Border Patrol agent or whatever. They identified who they were, what they wanted to do, and they started a process. Now, how they ended up in the custody or in a position where the state of Texas got involved, I don't know because a border patrol agent is a federal agent. So at that point, it should have been strictly federal, no state involvement at all. But somehow, some way, they got in the Texas government system, which allowed them to make a deal with the government in Florida, headed by Ron DeSantis, and fly them into Florida and then or get them in the floor, bust them in, flew them in, how they did it. And then they flew them to Martha's Vineyard. The other thing that you did not realize, Governor Santos, was that, and maybe you forgot, you did go to Harvard, so you went to school not that far from there. Those people have money. So it's like you went to a place where the people had money they would never vote for you. They're Democrats. So when they found out who sent them and what the situation was and what their story was, those folks bent over backwards, not only to make sure that they had some place to sleep and all that, but they got them attorneys, immigration attorneys. And the lady that you saw kind of like, you know, in the casual summer wear with the pigtails, that's one of the baddest immigration lawyers in America. Her name is Rachel Self. Governor DeSantis remembered that name. Remember it as she stands along the ACLU and any other organization that's going to try to push for you to go to jail, brother. Remember that. But getting back to the, to, to the Venezuelans, because of what you did, if that indictment happens, those folks will automatically get a permanent resident U visa. What that means is that some people, when they apply for U visas, when they apply for asylum, they could be deported before their case actually gets heard. That's tragic and unfortunate, but that happens. If you are indicted, sir, this guarantees that they will never have to go back to those conditions again. That means that those 50 people are going to be in the United States. And if they're given asylum, if they're given, if they're rewarded asylum, then they can, within a few years, become U.S. citizens. And some of them are going to come back to Florida because Florida, understand, not only has a huge Cuban population, 
but they also have a huge Venezuelan population. And those folks are not happy that you did that to their folks. So I hope you caught that that part. The, the section goes, I think it has five sections altogether, maybe a little longer. But you served in Congress, so you have access to the U.S. Code. You know how to look things up. You've had staff people look things up. They have them looking up for you. And to make sure your attorney general has a defense, make sure that your friend in Texas has it, and make sure your friend in Arizona, Governor Ducey, make sure he has a defense too because he was involved in this shipping stuff. See, when you were messing with these black cities like Chicago and New York and D.C., you know, Black folks are used to white folks doing stuff to them, putting burdens on them. Because in Jackson, Mississippi, they would, you know, dump homeless people in the black neighborhoods, right? As soon as the state said they couldn't take care of them, they would just dump them in. And so in Jackson, they created homeless shelters where they were dumping these people off, right? And one of them, uh, the stew pot, is legendary as far as how they've tried to take care of the homeless population in Jackson. Yes, that's the city that they cut the, the water wasn't working for two weeks. Yeah. So if Republicans get back to debating issues like civilized people, none of this would happen. But since you want to debate issues like you're trying to audition to be on The Real Housewives, pettiness is going to get you a problem. Pettiness might be okay on the Bravo network. Pettiness pettiness might be okay on the Fox network, the, the television network, the entertainment version. But it don't work in politics. There's repercussions for pettiness. And one of those repercussions could be an indictment. Just thought I'd let you know that as a public service announcement, Governor. Until next time.